If you have a Bible, uh, open to Luke 24. Um, I'm going to read some, some scripture here, and then we will, we will dive in. Luke chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking spices that they had prepared, and they, ooh, lost my place already, and they found that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not see the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened, they bowed their faces to the ground, and the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And how it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, and stooping in, and looking, he saw that the linen cloths were lying by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Join me, please, in just a quick word of prayer. Jesus, this is your word, and we pray, Father, we pray, Lord, that, that your, your truth, that your encouragement, that your compassion, that your spirit would go forth, that people would hear only what it is that you have to say, that I would be set off to the side that my humanity would not get in the way of your holy scripture for these people today, Lord. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to convict and to convert and to comfort and to save. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this, this text, it, it, it brings my mind to an event that I experienced some years back. And, and being a new pastor here and someone who's going to be around for quite some time, I'm going I'm to be a face that you see a lot. This is, part of this is sort of like, Here's, here's part of my story. What I want to share with you today is, one of the, is really the thing that brought me to the feet of Jesus, a truth that the Lord brought heavily onto my heart and onto my mind. And it, it brought me to the feet of Jesus. It devastated me. It was a reality that scared me. It was, it was sad. And I'm going to spend the first 10 or 15 minutes this morning beating us up a little bit. And to, to get this idea across, I want to share a quick story with you to, to sort of capture the idea, and then we're going to take it straight to the gospel. In 2016, I was working for a, a disaster relief organization called Samaritan's Purse. Maybe some of you have heard of it. Uh, being a disaster relief organization, their job is to, they do all sorts of things, but one of their main key works that they do is they go into places that have cities, communities, neighborhoods that have been destroyed by some sort of natural disaster, businesses and homes that have been um, destroyed by fire, flood, earthquake, tornado, tsunami, whatever it might be. And Samaritan's Purse gets together a team of staff and volunteers, and they go and they fix these buildings and these homes up like new, free of cost. They proclaim the gospel. We give a Bible to every homeowner or business owner that we, that we helped. And I spent a summer in 2016 doing this, and I was all over the southern United States, um, mainly in Texas. I spent a lot of time in Texas, and I was going from city to city to city. I'd spend a few weeks in one place, and then I'd spend a few weeks in another place, and then I'd go to another place, and it all sort of became a blur after a while. But one house that, that we worked on will stick in my mind for the rest of my life. It was in Houston, I believe, and it was a house that had been, this particular home had been flooded. It was eight feet underwater for over a month. 
Uh, if you remember, 2016, the south got ransacked with floods, and this, this home was completely destroyed. The water damage was almost completely beyond repair, and so the first thing that we had to do was go in and, and clean everything out of the house. And so usually I was a demolition guy. I would go in and tear out all of the drywall and the flooring and the baseboards and all that stuff. And to this particular house, we got there, and the family that had been evacuated from the home was there. They were outside. They were crying. They're, you know, it's, it's a pretty heavy moment to come to your house for the first time and see that it's completely destroyed with all of your stuff in there. And my team lead took me into the house and walked me specifically into one of the bedrooms. And he said, this was, this was the room of a woman who lived here, and she actually died during the time of the flood while the family was evacuated. And everything in here is completely biohazard. It's completely destroyed. And so we have to get everything out. And so they left me with a box of 55-gallon uh, garbage bags and a pair of gloves that went up to my elbows. And they're like, sorry, kid, this is, this is your job today. And so I, I got to work. I got to the, the hard work of taking this, this woman's stuff, this woman who was now dead, this woman's stuff, and, and throwing it into these garbage bags. I, t I took her bedding off. I, I threw her shoes in the garbage bag. I opened up her closets and, and threw all of her clothes into these garbage bags, and it was gut-wrenching, and, and it was gross. You know, it was Texas. It was June. It was hot. The house had been underwater for a month, and then just the humidity and the heat. To, it was just a really gut-wrenching experience. And as I'm working, throwing away all of this woman's worldly possessions, um, something catches my eye in the mud. Bright pink, this bright, even in the mud it was bright pink. And I picked it up and it was this little stuffed bear, this little stuffed animal bear. It's little, little, about this big. And it was holding a heart. And embroidered on the front of the heart it said, I love my grandma. And it's, I mean, it, it's almost enough to tear you up now. Um, and I thought, you know, there's this little silly pink bear that is just speaking volumes to my heart in that moment about this woman. Who was this woman? You know, it was, it was probably one of these kids that was out front crying that had given their grandmother this little bear. And I couldn't help myself. I started thinking about who this woman was. You know, all I, all I knew is I was, I was in a room. I was in a house. I was in Texas. Her family was out front. She was a grandmother, which meant that she was at some time a mother obviously, and so who, that's all I needed to know. Like, that was, that, this is a human being. And I started thinking about what, like, the details don't really matter, you know? Whether she was a stay-at-home mom her whole life, that's a lot of work and a lot of passion and a lot of discipline and empathy and care and love and compassion and diligence that you pour out being a mom, putting food on the table and clothes on the back and a roof over the head. Or if, if she was, if she worked in a cubicle somewhere, she worked in some sort of laboratory. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. This was obviously a human being who had put out a tremendous amount of selfless care for others. And at the end of her life, she had such a relationship with her family that she, she lived with them, and her grandchild was close enough to her to, to give her this little keepsake. And I, I, I thought, what if, the, what if this was it? You know, what if this was it? All of that work, all of that love, all of that diligence to get to the end of your life and what you get for it is some guy that you don't know from Portland, Oregon, you've got no beef with throwing all of your worldly possessions into a garbage bag while your room sits in mud. I thought this can't be it. This, this is death. 
I was, I was standing in literal decay, the, the stench and the rot of the, of the mold and the decay and the death and the loss and the sadness and people right outside the window crying in this, this little memento of that life that is now gone. That once, I mean, it, it meant so much to so many people. That woman was so important to somebody. And now she's gone. And what she gets for all of her efforts is me throwing all of her stuff away into a garbage bag. It was sad and it was disgusting. And people who have, have heard me preach more often, I know that I'm new to this, to this, this platform, but they, they know that I talk about this stuff a fair bit. And I don't do it because I think that it's funny or cute. I do it because growing up in Portland, Oregon, my culture sort of pushed me into a corner where I didn't have a whole lot of option other than to think of this sort of sad reality because I grew up in postmodern USA, Portland, Oregon, uh, in the 90s, and the, my greater culture basically taught this as their religion. You are so important and so valuable that you go out there in the world and you do whatever it is that makes you happy. You dig deep, you find your inner truth, and then you manifest it, you express it, you chase it. And you don't let anything stop you. You don't let mom and dad stop you. You don't let institutions stop you. You don't let teachers stop you. You don't let, especially, you don't let religion stop you. That's the greatest tragedy of all. You don't let anything stop you. You go out and you express whatever it is that you need to express. You find your truth and you declare it. And don't let anybody get in the way. And the reason why that was sort of the the anthem or the mantra was was undergirded with this, this sometimes explicitly stated belief that it's because there is no God. There is no God, there is no authority, there is no heaven, there is no hell, and so there's no one else to, to, there's no one else that you have to confide in, there's no one else who you have to seek the approval of, and there's certainly nobody else that you have to worship, so you worship you. You go do whatever it is that you want to do, because there is no God, and underneath that was another current of basically evolution. All of my friends, I went to a, a private, I went to a, a Christian high school, and so I wasn't taught this in the classroom, but everywhere else it was evolution. All of my friends were taught about evolution. Everything outside of my immediate environment in school was all about evolution. It was the rage in the 90s in Portland. We came from nothing, just an accident of two rocks colliding in outer space some odd trillion years ago, and then we sort of evolved one foot on the land and one fin in the water as we were turning into these human beings that can now walk and talk. And then when we die, there's certainly no heaven or hell. So there's nothing, and because there's nothing, you're, there is no God, and so you can basically do whatever you want. And that was, that was what I was taught. And I came to this, this, this moment with the bear, this moment in this woman's room was not the first time that I had, that I had considered the, our mortality and that we're, our lives are short. The Bible says that we're like a mist. I, I had come to that realization when I was 23 years old because prior to that, in my, in my late teens and 20s, I was hell on wheels. I was an absolute, I was a maniac. I was, a, I was drinking heavily. I was chasing all of the things that the world had to offer. I was chasing the philosophies. I was chasing the girls. I was chasing the drugs. I was chasing the highs. And I just kept feeding on that adrenaline. And so one day, I mean literally one day, the Lord, I woke up one morning and the Lord just laid it heavy on me. He's like, kid, you're going to die. Your family's going to die. Your friends, one by one, are going to die. And that's actually the only thing that you're really promised. All these things that you're pursuing are just leading to death. And it, it depressed me for months and months. The weight of it was so heavy that I actually became suicidal because I was so stricken with the grief that this is so temporary and that ultimately it leads to death 
and decay. We all end up in a box, and the reality of that devastated me. And when I was 23, I, I, I had been raised in the church. I'd been raised in Christian school. My parents were Christians, and so I did turn immediately to the Bible to seek something that was real beyond me and beyond my, my lusts. And while I turned to scripture, I also discovered some other people who had come to this sort of realization. And I started reading their books and reading about their experiences. And I wanna share a couple of those with you. The, the, I'm only gonna share one guy, but I'm gonna share a few of the things that he said. I, I got my hands on Leo Tolstoy's book, Confessions, where he writes about it. At 50 years old, he was published, he was famous, everybody wanted some of his time, they wanted a piece of his wisdom. He was still physically very strong, he was still mentally very sharp. His wife and his kids were all happy and healthy. He, I mean, he had everything that the world could offer. He had fame. He had renown. His name was published. People thought that he was an authority. He had it. P perfect health, mentally and physically. And at 50 years old, he says that he just, he came to an abyss. And he realized, what's it all about? What's it all for? So what if I achieve what I want to do? So what if I, if I actually have accomplished my dreams? What does it actually get me and he and this this stopped him in his tracks and he wrote this book called confessions and in it he's, he says this today or tomorrow sickness and death will come to those that i love or to me and nothing will remain but stench and worms sooner or later my affairs whatever they may be will be forgotten and i shall no longer exist so why go on making any effort how can man fail to see this and go on living that is what is surprising one can only live while one is intoxicated with life, but as soon as one is sober, it is impossible not to see that this is all a mere fraud and a stupid fraud. This is precisely what it is, and there is nothing amusing or witty about it. It is simply cruel and stupid. He goes on to say, my question was the simplest of questions. It's lying in the soul of every man from the most foolish of children to the wisest of elders. It was a question that without an answer, one cannot actually live as I had found by experience. And this was the question. What will come of what I am doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why should I wish for anything or do anything at all? Or it can be expressed like this, and I, I like this question. I like the way he says it here. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me will not destroy? And I say, amen. That's a good question. That's a good question. And what I had come to realize when I was introduced afresh to the gospel is that our culture is so wrong. Thank God our culture is so wrong. And these, these, these sweet women coming to the tomb were so wrong. They came bringing spices, and the reason why they brought spices that they had prepared is because they were expecting a dead Jesus. That was, their, that was their expectation. They weren't expecting anything more from their Lord. They were expecting him to be dead. They were expecting essentially to find in the tomb the same thing that I found in that woman's room, just the leftover remnants of a life that used to be and nothing else. And they were wrong, and Peter was wrong. Tolstoy goes on to say one more thing that I'll share with you. He says, for, for a person to be able to live, they must either not see the infinite or have such an explanation of the meaning of life as will connect the infinite with the finite. And friends, as believers in Jesus, 
we have this, we have this explanation. We have this answer. Our culture is wrong. We, our culture tells us that we have value and that we deserve love and that we deserve dignity, and it's absolutely true. All human beings deserve dignity, but our culture can't tell us why. They say, well, it's because we sort of just made that up. We made up philanthropy along the way because it somehow helped us evolve, which actually doesn't make sense, but we don't have time for that. But they say that we just sort of made it up. But I am, I am here to say, anytime that I'm behind one of these, that that is not why we have value. We have value and worth because we were created by a benevolent and good, omniscient, omnipotent, powerful God who is a father. We were created to be with him in relationship. Our, our, we, our hatred for death and our hatred for loss is because we're created in his image. He, we hate death because he is life. And we hate the loss of love because he is love. That's, that's why it's in our genes. That's why it's in our personhood. Because we are created in the image of a good and loving father. We hate isolation and depression and loneliness because for all of eternity our God has been a community of love and of joy. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What they say is that God is three in person and he is one in essence. And for all of eternity past, beyond what our minds can even compute, the, the upholding power of the entire cosmos is a community of love and we were created out of the abundance of that joy. We were created to be a part of that family. That's why that family was crying outside their home. There's something in their genes that is just united to community and family and we hate it when it's gone. We hate it when we lose it because God hates it. God hates death. And we hate it because he hates it. We were created for a community of love. We were created to be with one another, with God, in perfection, without any sin or rebellion. He says in Genesis, let us make man in our image, and he created them male and female. We were to be with him, and we lost it. And, and God warned us. God warned us. In Genesis 2, he says to Adam, go work the field, and you are free to eat of any tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. And the day that you do eat it, you shall surely die. You shall surely die. Die physically? Yes. Immediately? No. Not immediately. But our, our physical death, our physical atrophy and decay is a manifestation of a spiritual reality, of a spiritual death that took place. We cannot meddle with this. God is holy, he is just, he is perfect, he is righteous. And whenever we sinned, he had to pull us out of that family. He had to pull us out of that community. The day that you eat of that fruit, you will die. And there was nothing intrinsically evil about the fruit itself. It was the defected heart. It was a heart that essentially said the same thing that I learned growing up in Portland. You do whatever you want to do and you don't let anybody get in the way. No authority, no religion, no parent, no tradition. Nothing get in the way of what you want to do. You go do you and forget everybody else. And that is essentially what Adam and Eve did. I want to do what I want. I trust my intellect. I trust my emotions. I trust my desires over yours. Which means that we really also don't trust the Lord. And so in that rebellion, the Lord had to sever them from that relationship, and that is where the death took place. And I often use the analogy or the picture of a dozen roses, because a dozen roses are beautiful, and we give them to our loved ones for different occasions, and we put them on the end table, the nightstand, the mantelpiece, coffee table, whatever it is, 
and they do bring a certain sense of life and festivity to the home. They still smell nice, they still look good, and they're completely dead. They have been severed from the vine. They have been cut from the root system that's pulling nutrients into their petals. And they look nice and they smell nice for a little while, but in a couple of days, they will wilt and the petals will fall off and you will throw them away. And that is, that is like us. We, are, we're, we have physical life, but we have been separated from our life source. We have been separated from the family of God, from that intimate community that we were supposed to be a part of. And that condition, in reality, if that condition remained for all of eternity, that is the essence of hell. Separation from God familiarly. Separated from God in community. Separated from God intimately. Jesus says in John 17, this is eternal life, to know God in the, in the one, in the one, in the, in the Jesus who he has sent. To know the one true God in Jesus who he has sent. That is eternal life, to know, intimately to know. And we lost that. And so like these, these beautiful roses on the mantelpiece, we are decaying. And the Lord hates that. He hates that. He hates the decay that's happening in our lives. He hates the death that occurs. He hates the loss of love. We see it in John 11 when he's outside of the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus dead for four days in the tomb, and it says in 11 verse 35 that Jesus wept. Sorry. His, Lazarus' sisters were weeping, or Lazarus' sisters were weeping, and Jesus, seeing that sadness, seeing the death of his friend, Jesus wept. Our God wept because he hates death. It says later on in verse 38 that he was then again, he was then again aggravated in his spirit. The word means that he was indignant. He became angry and he demanded that they roll away the stone and then he called Lazarus out. He was sad and he was angry because he's sad about death. He doesn't like it and he hates sin. He's angry at sin. It's what caused this. He hates sin because it violates his righteousness and it robs him of us. And he sees it and we see it. We see it everywhere. Every mutated cell, every illness, every cancer, every broken heart, every tear, every betrayal, every breakup is a little bit of that hell touching our lives because God did not design us to be like that. He did not design us to experience death and loss of love and failure of relationship. That's not the world that he created. It is the, it is the reality of sin in our lives. And he loves us so much, praise God, he loves us so much that he did something radical about it. He did something almost completely unimaginable. The amount of compassion and love that he showed. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son so that whosoever, anybody, whosoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Now that verse says it. But we know also more from the rest of scripture what that sent entailed. God so loved the world that he sent his son. Well, we know that he didn't just send him to live. Jesus was not born, grew in wisdom, stature, and favor of man, and then at 33 years old, just get, just get, get taken back up into the heavens. He didn't just ascend after 33 years, live sinlessly, tempted in all the ways that we are, 100% God, 100% human being, mathematical equation that doesn't compute in our brains entirely, and then at 33 just go back into the heavens. But he also didn't just die. It's not as if Jesus Christ came to earth as a 33-year-old a week before Good Friday and then was killed and then rose again from the dead three days later and then 40 days after that ascended. He didn't just live and he didn't just die. He came and he lived and he died and that is incredible. 
He lived a life as a human being, tempted in all ways without sin, without sin in word, thought, or deed. He never sinned once. He lived the perfect life as we were supposed to live it. He lived that life. Never deviated from the Father's righteousness. Never deviated from the Father's will, the Father's holiness. He lived a perfect human life. And then he died the death that we deserved. He died so that we wouldn't have to. He died because of the punishment that needed to be put out on our sin. And his death, as gruesome as it, as it was, and as physically tormenting as it was, and as mutilating as it was, it was all of those things. And it was more for our Lord. Many thousands of people experienced the physical agony of a Roman cross. For Jesus, it was worse than just the physical agony. I want to turn real quick to Matthew 26. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane with his, with his disciples, verse 38, he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then again in verse 42, a second time he went away and he prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. The physical agony of the cross was absolutely something that was on our Lord's mind because he was human. How could it not be? And there was this cup, and the cup included more than just the physical agony. I pulled two verses out of the Old Testament to tell us what this, what this cup is, the cup that was approaching the Lord, the, the, our Lord, the cup that was, that was coming to Jesus, that he was like, if I can get out of this, can I get out of it? Psalm 58, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it to the dregs. His cup is for the wicked of the earth. Isaiah 51, verse 17, wake yourself, wake yourself and stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. In the Garden of Gethsemane, our Lord knew that the cup of wrath was coming towards him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin, that is our Jesus, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus didn't just die a physical death on the cross, he also became the very thing that our father had to turn his back on. He became sin. He took on the curse. He took on the punishment. And that community for all of eternity suffered a rift. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we would never have to say that. He took that punishment. His death paid the debt that our sin incurred. He did that on the cross for us. He took that punishment. God's justice is not a justice that we can meddle with. We cannot debate about it. We cannot complain about it. God is holy and he is righteous. He is perfect. Beyond what we can even imagine. And we have broken that law and it had to be paid. It was a stain that we could not remove. It was a debt that we could not pay. And Jesus in his love and his compassion came and lived the life that we should have and took the debt that was ours so that 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 perfect record of righteousness was then available as a free gift to those who put their faith in his name. If you believe in your heart, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, 
Believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. I didn't finish that. Then you will be saved. And that is available because of the work of Jesus Christ. And I, I, kind, of, I kind of think of it like this. The, the ancient Greeks had an idea about history. Uh, that it, it, didn't, it didn't move in a linear line. It didn't just continue straight on as, as we think of it. 1968 is back in 1968. 1970 is back in 1970. And we will never have 1970 ever again. And the Greeks believed that actually history would reboot every few hundred or few thousand years, that it would sort of repeat itself and start afresh. Not unlike tuning your, tuning, giving, giving your vehicle a tune-up. You know, new oil, new fluids, some new spark plugs, new brake pads, new serpentine belts, and it, it essentially runs the same, but you've just sort of refreshed it. You've given it, you've given it a, a reboot, so to speak. And this is how the Greeks thought of history. And the, the, the word that they used for this reboot was the word pelagonesia. This reboot in history was pelagonesia. And in Matthew 19, very interesting, Jesus, just after Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler, he's teaching his disciples, and he says to them, Truly I say to you that in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And that the new world that Jesus says, in, in the new world, some translations say in the regeneration. That word is pelagonesia, in the, in the reboot, if you will. And what Jesus is saying is that there's not multiple reboots. It's not this idea of sort of reincarnation almost that you get a chance again and again and again. He's saying that there will be a reboot one time. The pelagonesia will take place once. We will only one time move from the temporal and the physical to the spiritual and the eternal. That happens one time, a new heaven and a new world. And... We will be in heaven with each other and with our Lord, those of us who have put our faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And I think of it as sort of that when we, when we put, we, we get sort of a pelagonesia now. We experience our own taste of the new heaven and the new earth now. God's life comes to dwell inside of us when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. When we see him as the one who has come to take away death, the one who has come to defeat death, the author of all of the cosmos, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, human and deity, to seek and to save that which is lost. We cannot believe in Jesus simply as a miracle worker or a teacher, hoping that we'll get something cool from him like he's some sort of genie. He came to give us eternal life. He came to save us from, from eternal death. When we put our faith in him, as our Lord and as our Savior, we are given a new spirit. We are given a new heart. We are made alive to the things of God. We experience this sort of pelagonesia within ourselves and we are born again. And we have some wonderful promises because of that. And I want to read some of them to you because I want you, I want you to be encouraged that our Lord loves us. I want... I know that life is hard, and I know that in different forms and ways we have our own sort of experience with that, that room in the pink bear and the family that was crying outside. All of us have that in some way, and I, I want 
to encourage each one of you that the Lord is paying attention, that he has defeated that. It doesn't have the final say. It is not the end of our story as our culture would like to tell us. It is not. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Death is devoured by the cross. And in one of the greatest poetic moments of poetic justice, the greatest, really, the greatest, death becomes the very gateway to life. Paul says that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Death loses. Death gets devoured. That, that room with the, all the stench and the decay, and the, that, is, that is a gateway to life. Death is our gateway to life, to be with the Lord for all of eternity, to be ushered into paradise, to be ushered in to peace and joy everlasting. And I want, if, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you can just sit back and say amen. If you're here this morning, if you're listening online and you haven't put your faith in Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, then just, I hope that you're listening. Because our culture tells us this is it. Our culture tells us this is the one life you have and then that's it, so you better enjoy it. And it's not true. Death is devoured by the cross, and it becomes the very gateway to life everlasting. And then even our afflictions here, our hurts here, are given back to us. God counts every tear. God, it says that, that Jesus is holding up the universe by the word of his power in the book of Hebrews. He's holding up the cosmos, and it says that he knows how many hairs are on your head. He is paying attention to everything that is happening in your life. He is taking an account He's watching. He's listening. And our momentary affliction, Paul says it like this, this light and momentary affliction, 2 Corinthians 4, is preparing for us a weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to what is unseen. For what is seen is transient, what is unseen is eternal. The Lord took our sin and he gives us his life. And his resurrection three days after his death was proof that he is who he says that he is. And that his sacrifice was sufficient. Our guilt is paid for in the work of Jesus. And as a gift, we get his righteousness. And Colossians says that we are pure, we are holy, we are blameless, we are above reproach. It's strong language. Above reproach especially. There's something about that term that I'm just like, I am not above reproach. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. He said that we stand before God because, as, as if we were Christ because Christ stood before God as if he were us. This is our king. This is our Jesus. He is loving and he is compassionate and he is paying attention to you. And our afflictions now are preparing for us a weight of glory that's beyond comparison. So have hope and take heart and endure. Jesus is in the boat with us as he was in the boat with his disciples in John chapter six. He's in it with us through the storm. So closing, 
I'm going to say one last thing, and I still have 10 minutes on the clock, which makes me nervous. I might have missed something. I could not do this before 50, earlier than 50 minutes before, but I'm just going to let that go. We're not just let out of hell. I think that that's something that's really important to remember. You know, it, I had an incident with the police some years ago, and, and I went to, to get my lashings, and my charges were dropped, and they let me go. But they, they didn't give me an office. They didn't give me a job. They didn't give me a badge. They didn't give me anything. They just let me go, and I had to go back out kicking pop cans down the street like I was before. We're not just pardoned. We're not just released from our guilt. We're actually given heaven. We're given, it says that we become heirs of God. We become co-heirs with Christ. We get heaven. No more death, no more sadness, no more sorrow, no more tears. This is one of my favorite Bible verses. I will close with this. Let this be our hope, friends. Whatever it is that you're going through, I want this to bring you to, to love Jesus more, to worship him more purely and more spirit, more, more in spirit and truth. I want, I want people to love Jesus because we can't get out of this world. We can't get out of this. Whatever it is that's hurting, my dad still has cancer. I can't get out of that. My dad can't get out of that. But Jesus is in his boat. And we've got heaven to look forward to, and that cancer, and eventually, whether it's cancer or it's something else, my dad is going to die, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be able to escape that here. But death has been turned over. It has no more sting because death ushers us into life where there is no more cancer. There are no more mutated cells. There is no more sadness. Revelation 21, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be weeping or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. He took all of that into himself so that we would have a living hope beyond the walls of this world. Thank you, Jesus. If you're not saved, I want you to get saved. If you don't have faith in Jesus, I want you to put your faith in Jesus. You may not get out of whatever it is that's hurting you or your family right now, but that is so temporary. It's a small pain, and that pain will be used. Jesus is he's taking note, and he will give us glory that's beyond comparison. It's preparing that for us. So let us, let us endure well. Let us endure worshiping. Let us endure rightly with our eyes to Jesus. No human being has, has been asked to suffer more than our Jesus. His death on the cross was unimaginable. What that moment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We cannot compute what that was like. But maybe we, maybe we can a little bit and it will just draw our hearts to worship him even greater. If you are hurting, if you are sad, if you want to talk about Jesus, I'm, I'm going to be here the rest of the day, so come find me. Um, I'm going to close with a word of prayer, and then before I forget, we do have communion in the back, the little plastic to-go kind of thing. Bring it to you, go grab one, bring it to your pew, uh, have communion with us as the team comes up and worships. Um, it's a pleasure, Door of Hope. I love you guys. Let me close out with a word of prayer. Jesus, thank you for, thank you for your love. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for the life that you make so vibrant inside of us. It's a life that is, it's your life. It's life that is beyond this world. It's beyond this existence. It's a life of hope. 
It's a life of joy. And I pray, Lord, that even here in the midst of the turmoil of life on earth, that these people would be able to, would be, would be blessed and gifted with having some of your joy in the midst of their struggle, in the midst of their trial, in the midst of their world here today, and that they would worship you and they would thank you more and more. Thank you for your cross. Thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for coming to save us. In Jesus' name, amen.